0: Open your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Last week I uh, told you of my foolproof plan to make friends with Titus, uh, my uh, youngest grandson, by using some whipped cream. I tried it and it didn't work. (laughs) He looked at me like, you're trying to trick me, aren't you? I'm not going to like you no matter what you do. <laughs> he was at my house yesterday. I tried it again. <laughs> I don't want any whipped cream. I don't know what in the world's wrong with him. <laughs> I'm going to have to be really patient and find just the right thing to feed him before we're going to become buddies, I can tell. Love is shown and perceived in many ways. A well-known book was written a few years ago called The Five Love Languages, and it was one man's attempt to say these are, these are five different ways that people give and perceive love. I'm pretty sure that what's written in 1 Corinthians 5 wasn't in that book, even though it is a way that God wants us to love one another. Let's read about it. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. And you, you are puffed up. The church of Corinth is puffed up. And you have not rather mourned that he who has been done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present, I have already judged him who has done this deed. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump Since you truly are unleavened, for indeed Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, yet I certainly did not mean the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not to even eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you you not judge those who are inside? but those who are outside God judges. Therefore, you should put away from yourselves the evil person. Now, this is a very, a very harsh passage of Scripture. There's no doubt about that. Uh, it is not a passage of Scripture I would choose to preach on if I was going to visit another church. <laughs> but it's a passage of Scripture that God inspired, and I honestly do believe that there is a way in this passage that God wants us to show love to one another, and that way, in summary, is this. We're supposed to help each other walk in righteousness. And sometimes, sometimes that takes some difficult activity. What we've been learning uh, started in verses 1 and 2 with this. The church in Corinth had a wrong attitude towards sin. They saw this terrible sin of, of sexual immorality within their church, and somehow they were glorying, they were puffed up. Somehow they thought they were, they were something uh, because they were tolerating this sin. And God says, no, the correct attitude towards sin is always to mourn or to grieve because the consequences of sin are always ruinous. They're ruinous in this life. If you live in sin, good things don't happen. Difficult things happen. And of course, if you, if you remain in sin, it's an indication that you're not a believer in Christ. And that brings the ultimate ruin, which is eternity in hell. So the correct attitude towards sin is to mourn and to be grieved, whether it's in us or our brothers and sisters around us. We should never be arrogant and think, well, I'm not sinful like that. We should be, we should be uh, sad and concerned and say, oh God, help me to be part of the solution in their life. Verses 1 through 5 talks about the fact that Christians have a responsibility to help one another get out of sin When he says deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh That his spirit may be saved in the day of Christ Jesus. He's not talking about the person being put to physical death He's talking to putting the person outside and Matthew 18 says that when we agree together with God that this person is a rebellious sinner that he goes outside of the realm of God's protection and Satan comes against him and causes calamity and difficulty in his life and ideally that person says hey I've been wrong and they repent and they run to God and the earthly manifestation of God is the church the body of Christ local the local church verse 6 says the failure to remove sin causes it causes increasing spiritual ruin do you not know that a little bit of leaven or a little bit of yeast in the bread m- permeates the whole loaf? And he says, as a body of believers, if we know about people living in unrepentant sin and we do nothing about it, it is going to affect the whole body. We don't want that. We want to be a place where people know the Lord and grow in the Lord. We want to be a place that sends out missionaries. And frankly, that doesn't happen if sin is what's pervading the church. And so we, we, we want to understand that we must do some things that are hard at times in order to keep God's work doing what God wants it to do. In verses seven through eight, we learned that separation from sin honors our Savior. He says, you are, in fact, unleavened. And he talks about our position. When Christ saved us from our sin, we, we took a seat with him in the heavenly places. We are perfectly righteous with God And we have some things to work on here on this earth. But when we live up to that position by living righteously, we honor the Savior who died for us. And today, in the last section of this chapter, we want to learn this truth. Separation from sinners requires thoughtful action. We need to be careful and we need to understand the Scripture carefully as we live it out. It's hard to live out, but it's worse when we don't do it in a scriptural manner. So the first thing that we understand in verses 9 and 10 is this. Separation from sinner does not mean isolation from the unsaved. Look at verse 9. I wrote to you my epistle, and apparently there is an epistle or a letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians before 1 Corinthians. I guess we'd call it zero Corinthians. He wrote them a letter, and no doubt he wrote many Letters that are not in existence. That's not a problem for our understanding of the Scripture. We understand that God caused some of those letters to be preserved and some of them not. And so he had previously written to them and told them a certain truth, which was you need to stay separate from those who live in sexual immorality. In verse 10, though, they had a misunderstanding. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or the covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. That's a, pretty, that's a growingly obvious truth to us today in our country, because the, the morality of our country is degenerating, or else it's becoming more visible, one of the two. And so the, the, there's always been a struggle with Christians as to how close do I get, how close do I need to get, how far away do I have to stay, some of those things. And Paul says, listen, separation from sinners does not mean isolation from the unsaved. The gospel ministry requires interaction with unbelievers. That should be a great big duh. Okay, duh. We have to interact with sinners or we can't reach them for the Lord. And yet sometimes we forget that. One of the natural things that happens to new believers in Christ is they they come to Christ and, and when they're first in Christ, they have a whole circle of unbelievers around them. And uh, oftentimes, they influence some of those people to come along to the Lord. But very soon, there's conflict because their old circle wants to do some things that they don't want to participate in. And they're really trying to grow in the Lord. And so they, they naturally distance themselves from the unsaved. And, and they're really liking what they see in church. And so they cling to the believers And there's a good side to that. And the good side is because that's how you live righteously. You cling to believers and you you keep a certain distance from unbelievers. That's what we're going to talk about today. But sometimes we get over here and we go, you know what? This is so comfortable. It's like my bed at 6.30 in the morning. Oh, it feels so good. And I think I should get up. But it feels so good here maybe I'll just stay here a little longer. You know, and and if a person did that all day long, then they would be failing in their responsibility. And so that's the challenge. And then, of course, some Christians today, there's been kind of a movement in the evangelical world to to sort of get super involved with the unsaved, perhaps in some ways that they shouldn't. And so the question comes, how, how do we live this out? Well, we start by understanding that Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. It goes without saying that sharing the gospel requires interaction with those who don't yet know Christ. In Christ's first great message, he said this, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? We could also say, if the salt stays in the shaker all the time, how is the world going to be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And, of course, we have a little song, This Little Light of Mine, and uh, you know, hide it under a bushel. No, I'm not going to do that. That's the challenge. We have to figure out, how do I live righteously, and let my light shine, and connect with unbelievers without being drawn away from Christ? In order to effectively speak the message of Christ, we must show the life of Christ so unbelievers can see it. And that requires more than a passing glance. It requires more than a passing glance. How many of you know who that guy is? Yeah. His name is Chip Foose. He is a car designer, he is a, a wheel designer. And he has this show called Overhauling. And, uh, you know, my neighbor needs his ministry. My neighbor has a car that he—I don't know how many years have they lived there, seven, eight years, maybe more—and uh, he he tinkers on this car in the garage all the time. It's a it's a classic uh, Ford Galaxy, I believe. And and boy, and what the what this show does is they go and they 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 create some roost to to take the guy's car and they take it in and they turn it into some beauty like that. Uh, and uh, give it back to him, and it's been gone through uh, top to bottom, you know, back to front, and it's just a beautiful, gorgeous thing. Well, I saw Chip Foose in the Sea-Tac Airport uh, two, three years ago. I was walking through, and, you know, I'm getting off the plane, and I'm, I'm I'm walking down a little rampy thing with my suitcase, and, and I look over, and there's Chip Foose headed to the men's room, you know? And, and our eyes met, and he smiled, and he gave me that look like, yes, I'm that guy, And I'm going to the bathroom. I'll see you later. (laughs) And I just kept walking. (laughs) Okay. Unbelievers need more than a passing glance to see the Lord. Okay. He seems like a real nice guy. I have no idea. I don't know him. Okay. It's real tempting for us to pull into the holy huddle and just want to just be here where it feels good. But God has called us to be out there, to be salt and light, and to show Christ to people. We can't just give the unsaved a nod. We've got to do more than that. The Apostle Paul talks about how he was when he was first trying to evangelize the Thessalonians. We were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. Because you had become dear to us, we imparted our lives to you. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preached to you the gospel of God. Somehow that's the model that we have to pursue. And and the reason is because all of the statistics show that it's because of a friend that people come to Christ. Over 80% of people who walk into a church for the first time or who come to Christ, it's because of a friend. And the reason for that is this little statement here. The best salesman is a satisfied customer. Okay? Um... I remember the first time a guy told me about Costco. Man, you got to go to Costco. It's the greatest thing. You know, they got the greatest deals and blah, 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 blah. He was the chairman of my board in and He made sure I got a Costco card so I can go to Costco. I've been going to Costco practically since it was open, you know. And honestly, it's because of Joe Byam. I never heard of Costco before him. He's a satisfied customer. Are you a satisfied customer? Helping people see the positive value of Christ requires relationship. We need to be friends with unbelievers that God brings into our life, whether it's at work or the neighborhood, McDonald's, the sheriff's office for me, and the church, the school, the athletic club, the sports team, our families, wherever God might lead us. Jesus was called a friend of tax collectors and sinners. We should be that way. Our church should be known that way. We welcome people to come and hear about the Lord, and we love them and care for them to Christ. We must build redemptive relationships. But the point of the passage here in 1 Corinthians 5 um, is also traveling along this line of saying, be careful in your redemptive relationships. Jesus put it this way, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And so if if you haven't heard it, there's a little phrase that's coined years ago. Christians are in the world, but we are not of the world. The challenge for us is to say, in my redemptive relationships with unbelievers, how can I connect with them and yet still walk with the Lord, not be drawn down to sinful a sinful level. The gospel ministry requires interaction with believers, but it also requires, godly living requires a separation from the unsaved. And the thing that I want you to understand today is what the word separation means. As I said in the main point here, separation is not isolation, as in I have no interaction whatsoever, but there is a distance that needs to be maintained. Godly living requires separation from the unsaved. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial or the devil? What part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. There's an imagery here. And the imagery is of being a cow. <laughs> that's, that's a yoke. When the scripture said, don't be unequally yoked together, the, the mental image God was drawing for the people of that day was taking two animals uh, who are capable of pulling some other implement, you know, a plow or what have you, a cart, and putting them in a yoke to work together. And the imagery was of being unequally yoked. When I drive down through the middle of the uh, residential to get to the church from my house, I drive by a pair of unequally yoked dogs. These people have a full Mastiff, I think, and then a Chihuahua. <laughs> and the big dog stands there and the little dog goes, hey, let's play, hey, 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 hey. You know, and the little dog could, the big dog could go, Pfft. <laughs> Love to see that, that'd be fun, you know. <laughs> Can you imagine taking two disparate animals like that and putting them in this yoke? It obviously doesn't work. And God said, and and, you know, when God described this, did you notice how he went on at length? He didn't just say one example. He said, don't be unequally yoked. What fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion, light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What part a believer with an unbeliever? What agreement, the temple of God with idols? Therefore, come out and be separate and do not touch the unclean thing. And so somehow God's concept, God is the one saying, go out and reach the unsaved. The Apostle Paul was the one saying, I gave my life to these people and connected with them. And yet at the same time, there is a a certain kind of distance that is kept so that we are not pulled into sin, God says, don't get yourself into a place where you are bound. The the, the idea of the yoking is being so connected to someone or something that you can't help but go where they go. You can't turn left and the other one turn right in a deal like that. You can't do it. This kind of yoking happens with best friends who become so besties that they can't live without the other person's approval. It happens certainly in romantic relationships. People become so in love with the other person that they don't want to say no. You know, when you ask the question, why does an unbeliever marry a believer, the answer is simple, because they fell in love And the bond was too hard to break because it would be really painful to break such a bond. God says don't get into those kind of bonds with unbelievers. Business partnerships. Uh, You get into a business partnership with somebody who's not a believer and they may want to go left when you want to go right. Uh, Education as an institution is a challenging place to live out your Christian faith, whether it's at the the lower level or the upper levels, club organizations, and then relationships in general which begin as redemptive but change into something different. We have to ever be mindful of this little truth. Evil company corrupts good habits. Here's what's interesting is God doesn't seem to say that good company changes evil company. Now, I know that happens, but it only happens when people get saved. And so we have to, there's a constant kind of analysis that needs to go on. That constant kind of analysis, we we say, okay, how can I connect without being pulled? How can I connect without being bound? And it's... uh, it's not an absolute science. Look at verse 9 again. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, yet not those of the world, because then you'd have to leave the world. Separation, and, and, and get this, I'm using the word separation in sort of a theological way. In other words, I'm going to give you what I'd call a theological definition of separation. Separation from unbelievers means using godly wisdom in carrying out redemptive relationships, it does not mean rejecting all interaction with those who do not know Christ. God commands us to keep a wise distance in our relationships with unbelievers, but when he comes to believers, he has something much more uh, challenging to say. Look at verse 11. But now, he said, I've talked to you about unbelievers, but now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone who is called a brother, that's that's a reference to being a Christian, a brother or sister was the way they referred to fellow Christians, who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not to even eat with such a person. What we see here, the other main truth of this passage is this, separation from sinful believers means breaking fellowship, And the first truth we have to understand is the list of sins is typical, not exhaustive. Here's what I mean by that. I don't believe God was giving us a list of of however many it is there, five sins, and and you tick them off. Well, they're not doing this, and they're not doing this, and not doing this, and not doing that, so it's okay if I hang with them. Do you really think God in heaven would say, now look, Here's five sins. If they're committing these five sins, don't hang around with them. But if they're committing these other five or 10 or 20 sins, that's okay. Well, we've got to think about that just a little bit, don't you? Look at the list. Sexually immoral. That's broad. Coveting. Coveting is when you want things you don't have because it's going to make you into something you aren't. Coveting, extortioner, getting things from people that in an ungodly way, idolatry, worshiping something, that's a broad one as well. Sexually immoral, coveting, idolater. the word reviler uh, means to be a slanderer, somebody who speaks poorly of other people on purpose, a drunkard or an extortioner, not to even eat with such a person. You know, if, as we study through the book of 1 Corinthians, we're going to see these sins in the church. These things were going on in the church. It's really, it, was, it really had devolved a lot. I don't believe the list of sins is meant to be an exhaustive uh, checklist, but an, a typical list. In other words, you go back to 1 Corinthians, or, or verse 7. Therefore, purge out the old leaven, That is a broad word which talks about life outside of Christ. And so he's saying, purge that out. Don't hang with people who are living in that kind of sin. And the other thing that's very important here is this, and I hope you really hone in on this and grab this, otherwise you're going to think me some type of a fanatic, and I've never been accused of that before. The sin which calls for separation... The sin that calls for a breaking of fellowship is ongoing, not one time. Look at the word is. Isn't that funny? It depends on what the definition of is is. Look at the word is. It really does here. Let's back up. uh, or No, verse um, 11. I have written you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is now in the greek language you can write a verb in such a way that it's called present tense and it indicates ongoing action okay it's not saying did this person one time commit a sexual uh, an act of sexual immorality it's not did they one time covet that new thing it's not one time did they fall back into their ways of idolatry. It's saying somebody who calls themselves a brother, but the reality of their life is they are. There is an ongoing kind of sin in their life. Look back at verse 1, the, 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 the thing that, that caused this passage to be written. There is a sexually immoral person who has his father's wife. And that, again, is written in the present tense, indicating this is an ongoing thing. It's not a one-time thing. It's not something that somebody, they, they, they did wrong and they said, hey, I did wrong. And they've confessed and made it right. It's not talking about, you know, somehow scrutinizing everybody's life for anything they've ever done. It's talking about a person who is unrepentant and on and on they are sinning and sinning and sinning. You know, if you look at verse 11, I would assume we have all made the list at one time or another. And I would assume that because I've made the list at one time or another. Don't keep company with a brother who's called sexually immoral, coveting, idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, an extortioner. We've all been on that list at one time or another. But the question is, is that the lifestyle we're living in? Is that the tone of our life? Is there an ongoing, unrepentant sin? You see, because when I sin, I do what I believe many of you do, and certainly what I hope you do, what I've been teaching you to do, which is to confess the sin. And then to repent, which means I was doing this, but now I'm going to do the righteous thing. I'm going to turn from my sin. And by God's grace, I can consistently stand in righteousness, not because I'm perfect, but because I constantly confess sin. I constantly judge that sin. But this is speaking of people who call themselves believers and live in open, blatant, unrepentant sin. And so, then we understand that the goal of separation is righteousness, not punishment. Uh, My wife and I watched a movie last night that was uh, based on a true story and it involved a, uh, a major church movement and they talked about people who had sinned and had to make atonement for their sins. I got news for you, you can't do that. And I can't make you do that because Christ paid for your sin on the cross. There is nothing punitive going on here. And, and for that matter, there's nothing punitive in the way that God interacts with Christians. There are elements of discipline for the sake of righteousness in God's relationship with us, and there may need to be that in time, uh, at times in our relationships with one another. Here's how God encourages righteousness, but does not mete out punishment, Have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons? My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord love, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Now, um, when we see a word like chastening, we see a word like scourging, we're thinking punishment. And that's because even though we had good intentions, Perhaps as parents, our mental image was, I'm going to punish you for doing wrong. The whole concept of discipline or chastening with God is not about punishment. The concept is encouragement to live righteously. He chastens us for our profit, for our profit, for our benefit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present but painful nevertheless afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it and the whole concept of training or raising a child is the idea of shaping and molding into a good adult person the word chastening in the NIV it's translated discipline again when we use the word discipline we're often talking about uh, you know some some negative reinforcement, some spanking, some, some go to the corner, time out, whatever it is. But the word here refers to training somebody up, everything that's included in that process. In parenting, uh, there is instruction by words. There is praise for the right beh- behavior. There is disapproval and rebuke of wrong behavior. There is correction with words. You did the wrong thing. Here's the right thing to do. And then there is motivational reinforcement, either painful or positive. You know, the positive is, here's a gold chart. Every time you make your bed, you're getting a star and a nickel. And the positive is, I've been telling you about making that bed for a week, and now if you don't make it tomorrow, there's gonna be no gold star, and there's gonna be a reminder. Okay? And there's room For people to have different kinds of reminders, I do believe what God says when he says, spare the rod, spoil the child. I believe they're with very little children. The only thing they understand is pain and pleasure. And so you give them a little bit of pain, and they learn, hey, you know, I need to listen to the big guy. And what happens, I believe, is they grow up thinking, I need to listen to the big guy. Because God does the same thing. You can only live in sin just so long before he brings along some pain, not to make you pay for your sin because you can't possibly pay for your sin. He brings along some pain so you'll go, whoa, that's the wrong direction. I'm going to turn around. And that's what God wants us to do in the body of Christ when it becomes necessary. How does God accomplish this chastening work? He might have a police officer in just the right place at just the right time. Oh, we got different opinions about that. He might put someone in just the right place at the right time to hear those words come out of your mouth, and then you go, Ooh, I wish they hadn't heard that. I asked a pastor friend who had become immoral, did God warn you before this happened? He said, oh yes, and he went back and told me about the warnings he received, and he ignored. See, I think that's, a, that's what God does. Anytime there's a sin in our life, he brings little things along. You know, if you're a child, he brings the parent along to say, shouldn't be that way. And it's kind of what in the scripture calls a still small voice. You're walking this way, you're walking that way, and you get a nudge, And you know, the farther you walk, the more God says, okay, I guess you can't hear the nudge. I guess I'm going to have to give you one of those through some greater calamity. I heard a preacher say years ago, you can confess your sin in private to God or he will confess it publicly for you. And one of the ways that can happen is for a church to care so much for one another that they don't stay silent about sin. The goal is righteousness. God's discipline, whether through some circumstance in life or through a body of believers, is for the purpose of helping people walk righteously. And that's how we need to think of it. The act of separation is a last resort, not a first move. When we read this passage in 1 Corinthians 5, we can know for certain that what's been already going on is the words of our Lord uh, that Paul would have taught them. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him. That's a personal rebuke. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. If he will not hear you, take one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. That is just what it says, and I think in the church setting that should be a spiritual leader um, of some sort who goes with you. And if he refuses to hear that, two or three, tell it to the church. And the inference, the little piece they left out, is tell it to the church so the whole church will rebuke them. Can you imagine what would happen if, if need be, if our whole church, anytime we saw a certain brother or sister, we were saying, Are you doing the right thing? Are you making those changes? I mean, every time, you know, um, on on an average Sunday morning, we have 170 people here in church, but we've probably got, I don't know, 250 or better people that are part of the church. And can you imagine if 250 people went, what are you doing? What are you doing? Are you doing the right thing? Are you doing the right thing? You know, one of two things would happen, wouldn't it? (laughs) Either they'd say, man, I don't want to hear one more person say that. that would be the right response. And they'd say, I'm going to confess my sin. I'm going to change my behavior. Or they'd say, I don't want to hear one more person say that. I'm going to get as far away from those people as I can. Okay. Now again, folks, it's about righteousness. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he reap. If he sows to his flesh, he will reap corruption. If he sows to the Spirit, he will reap eternal life. I don't know about you, but I want people to walk in eternal life. God knows that sin is enslaving. And the longer somebody walks in it, the more trapped they are. And so at times, people need help to escape the hold of sin. And so he created this Matthew 18 process and says, do this. When we fail to use this process... We are not loving the sinner. We are loving ourselves. Because I can speak from experience, it ain't fun. But it's important. It's so important. The definition of separation is distance, not rejection. And this is a little hard for me to verbalize. I want to try and, and get it to you. Would you look back with me at verse 2? In fact, we we could even just scan the passage. But in verse 2, he says, You've been glorying. What you should have done is mourn so that this person would be taken away. Verse 5, he says, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. In verse 7, he says, Purge out the old leaven. In verse 11, he says, Don't keep company with an immoral Christian. And in verse 13, he says, Put away from yourselves the evil person. Now, would you look at that five different ways in five scriptures in a short space, God says the same thing? Do you think he really means it? Now, here's some, some questions to say, how do we live this out? You know, certainly part of it is, is an official church process, Um, which we we would work on together. But perhaps even in a casual, you have a casual relationship, perhaps for some believer from another church, does this mean you cannot talk to such a person? Does it mean, according, when he says they're not to even eat with such a one, that if you stop eating with them, have you fulfilled God's whole command? And what does it mean in Matthew 18 to treat them like a heathen Let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. What does that mean? I would suggest two questions for you to ask in your, relation, in your ministry of helping one another walk righteously. Two questions when somebody is really stuck in a sin. Are my interactions with the sinning Christian encouraging them to feel good while they are living in sin? This is the negative question. In other words, am I, you know, I'm hanging out with them, I'm having dinner with them, I'm fixing their car, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. Am I essentially trying to make them feel okay, help them with their life, even though the whole cause of their difficulty is they're living in sin, and they're unwilling to admit it and change. Now, if I put it positively, it looks like this. Are my interactions with the sinning believer encouraging them to get right with God and the church? In other words, yes, we should have interaction with the sinning brother or sister, but that interaction should be redemptive. It should be uh, ministry-oriented. Is it acceptable to talk to them about their sin? Absolutely. Is it acceptable to... Help them come back to Christ? Certainly. Should we invite them over to watch the big game and eat junk food and laugh and carry on while the Seahawks destroy another team (laughs) and ignore the elephant sitting in the room? No. Not to even eat is what verse 11 says. Not even to eat with such a person that seems to mark the minimal beginning point of separation. Let me challenge you to think of it this way. I hope this is not an overgeneralization or a trivialization of this. What do you say about a parent who has a child who is demanding and controlling, maybe out of control, gets their way all the time? You say the parent is spoiling the child, right? Because you're looking at it thinking, why don't you do something about that? What do you say about the church who has members living in sin and they do nothing about it? Ooh, might we be spoiling some Christians? Wow. Wow. the leader of a, a national ministry that was part of our fellowship uh, told a story about, uh, I heard him in a seminar, he was talking about going to Russia to survey the ministry. They were gonna figure out certain things that could be done or needed to be done. And he had two pastors from America with him and they met with three pastors, I, probably the leader of a group of churches and a couple of pastors, something like that. And they talked about the ministry, doing this and doing that. And, and when they were done, they got ready to go and each one of those Russians reached out to hug one of the, one of the, the Americans and gave him a great big kiss right on the lips. Because oh. apparently, that's how they show affection. Okay? One of those pastors said to the leader of the ministry, that will never happen again. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that won't happen here today. In fact, I can speak for myself. I'm absolutely certain it won't happen today. (laughs) I love you, Chuck, but not that much. (laughs) In our culture, (laughs) we show affection in a variety of ways. They may be physical, it may be helpful, it may be all kinds of ways. But one of the ways we need to show affection in our church is to be that shoulder to cry on and someone to pray with and when needed someone to say brother sister this needs to change may god help us love our brothers and sisters that much heavenly father this is easier to preach than to live out i confess that it's easier to just let people do their own thing but it's not better. It's not better for them, it's not better for us. So Father, I pray that you'll help us, help us to live what the scripture says, and when we do, Father, will you please give positive fruit? Will you please show us that we have helped one another and that we have strengthened your body of believers here? I pray in Christ's name, amen.